And Paul says, I rejoice in that. But Paul qualifies that statement that he makes a couple times immediately so that the Philippians don't get the wrong impression. Because if you just read that verse, they might read that statement by Paul as, well, thanks, guys. It's been a long time, and I'm glad you finally got around to giving me this money, because I really could have used it a while ago. But, oh well, better late than never. Okay? You could have read it that way, and to make sure that the Philippians don't read it that way, Paul adds on this qualification. Notice he says, You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Meaning, Paul, Paul is saying to them, I understand that you would have done something sooner, but you didn't have the opportunity. You didn't have the chance to do something. You know, maybe, maybe they didn't have much money themselves and they couldn't give him any money sooner. Or perhaps they didn't have a way to get the money to Paul, and now they do through Epaphroditus. Or maybe he had even told them not to send him any money so that the other churches wouldn't get the impression that he was doing his work out of a motivation for monetary gain. These are all possibilities, and quite honestly, it doesn't really matter what the reason is that they haven't shown their concern in this tangible way before this. Paul is just saying, I rejoice to see that your, your concern is blooming again, that I'm seeing it showing. But notice also that Paul really starts to get sidetracked from his word of thanks in verses 11 to 13. And this is really where he gets into his message within a message, because he qualifies that first statement again in a second way when he says... Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul moves away for a moment from thanking the Philippians for that generous gift to explain that he wasn't rejoicing because he really needed the money. Actually, if you read those verses, it sounds kind of like he didn't really need the money. Why don't you need the money, Paul? He says that he has learned to be content regardless of the status of his bank account. Now this is pretty astounding to us, I'll be honest. When we read this in our American audience, really, Paul, you can be content without even looking at your bank account? What if you don't have any money, Paul? Surely you need to have at least a modest income in order to be content, right? We have so much stuff today, and we want so much more stuff that we set ourselves up to need more and more money all the time. We need more money so that we can pay for the huge mortgage payments that we have, the premium loan payments we make on the premium cars that we buy, the maxed out credit cards that we have to pay off for the brand new wardrobes that we stocked our closets with 
Our culture sells us the lie that we'll never be happy without more and more stuff. And we can't get that stuff without more money. So we can't possibly imagine having enough money unless we have the salary of an NFL quarterback, or at least maybe an NHL lineman. But Paul tells the Philippians that he can be content regardless of how much money he has. But notice, notice how he goes on in verse 12 to list three contrasts to illustrate what he means. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Folks, we have to recognize that Paul has faced humiliation and shame before. He's been forsaken by friends. He's had angry mobs throw stones at him and leave him in the street to die. He's grieved from deep heartaches. He's been brought low. Now many of you know uh, that two weeks ago today, my wife and I lost our first baby at 10 weeks in the womb. That has been one of the hardest things we've ever gone through in our lives. Because we were both eagerly looking forward to welcoming our first child into the world. We still feel pain all the time from the loss. But I can honestly say that we have been comforted in ways we couldn't explain by God, the Word of God, and the people of God. A passage like this reminds me that Paul, a man who was stoned, who was left for dead, who was shipwrecked, says that he learned to be content regardless of the situation. We will all feel pain in this life from hardships that we face, but God promises that we can be content when we find our ultimate joy and satisfaction in him, in him alone. We can grieve and still bring God glory through the contentment that we find in him. Notice that Paul goes on to say, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. See, his language makes it clear There's no circumstance that is an exception. He says, in any and every circumstance, he has learned the secret. Now this is a really neat verb. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. And in fact, in Paul's time period, this is a verb that would have been used by the mystery religions to talk about an initiation into a rite or secret knowledge. And it's funny because Paul often uses cultic references or mystic references in the scriptures and he kind of pokes fun at them by the way that he uses them. Because you'll notice he quite literally says that he has been initiated into the mystery of having an empty stomach or of having a full stomach. He has learned the secret that in through those things he can face abundance and need. Now we know that Paul faced hunger and need. We, we read throughout the scriptures, he, he gives us these long lists of sufferings that he's gone through. But we often forget that in Philippi, Paul lodged with a wealthy woman named Lydia who provided for his needs. 
he sat at a table where Lydia's servants prepared gourmet meals for him. He lived in the lap of luxury night after night while he ministered in Philippi. And some of you might be thinking, what's so hard about that, Paul? I mean, I understand why it's hard to be brought low, to face hunger and need. But what's so hard about what you call here abounding and facing plenty and abundance? Well, Paul understood something that we all ought to understand ourselves, and that is that these things are difficult. Because it would be easy to think that these comforts are what life's really about. It would be easy for Paul to have just stayed in Lydia's house and think, what am I doing? Why would I give all this up and travel to another city where I may be on the streets for days or weeks? Why would I give up three good meals a day to a situation where I may be fortunate to get one decent meal in per day? Is it really worth it? Is the gospel really worth it? Folks, we may struggle to learn contentment in this area more than anything else that Paul says here. Think about it. Maybe you've been through a time in your life where you lost a job or you were making very little money and you learned to depend on God for everything. You were brought very low, like Paul talks about. You didn't have much. And yet, through that circumstance, you developed a walk with God because he drew himself and drew you to him. And then maybe in his sovereignty, he may have led you to a new job in which you're making more money than you ever have before. Suddenly you go from this place where you're, you're barely surviving to a place where you're putting away a lot of money for a comfortable emergency fund as a safety net. And maybe you're putting away a sizable amount for your retirement. First of all, I want to say, good job for saving an emergency fund. That's biblically wise. That's a good thing to do. And also, it's a good thing to be putting away some money for a time like retirement when you may not be able to work for a living. The Bible commends that. But watch out. Make sure that you don't begin to lean on your 401k for peace of mind. Be careful that you don't find your sense of security in your sizable income regardless of the number. If your prayer life, your involvement in ministry, or your pursuit of God in the scriptures has declined since your bank account has increased, it's very likely that you've stopped finding your joy in God and you're finding it in other things. That's a dangerous place to be. God wants us to depend on him at all times. And Paul rightly points out that we must learn to trust in God and find our contentment in him at all times, whether in wealth or in want, whether in Lydia's house or the poor house. God wants us to depend on him. The secret that allows Paul to face any and all circumstances is found in verse 13. 
this most well-known verse that says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, like I said, this verse is probably one of the most well-known verses in the entire Bible. And I would also say that it's probably one of the verses that is taken out of context more than any other verse in the entire Bible. I mean, come on. How many times have you heard a five foot five junior high boy say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as he tries to dunk a basketball? Or how many times do you hear a student who either did or didn't study go into an exam saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me in order to get an A on the final exam? Okay, it sounds spiritual to quote scripture when we're going through something. But remember, Paul here says he has learned that he can be content in any circumstance. So when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he's talking about he can go through anything and still be content in Christ because he's not self-sufficient, he's Christ-sufficient. And he says, if you put your sufficiency in Christ, you can be content as well. So our first point this morning is when you find your joy in God, you can be content in any circumstance. And I'll let you in on a little secret. If you're worried, the first point is always the longest point. Okay, we move quickly from here. That was Paul's message within a message. He came to thank them for this gift. And then he says, now I do want to remind you, I'm not thankful for the gift because I needed the money, because I can be content in any circumstance, and so can you. But let's get back to the reason why I wrote this, and that's to thank you for the gift. So let's talk about that. After he clarifies these things to the Philippians, Paul returns to his main point in verse 14 by saying, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Now, how did the Philippians share in Paul's trouble? Well, if you remember, Paul is writing this section to thank them for their gift. So what Paul is saying here is that the Philippians shared in his trouble by supporting his ministry financially. That's exactly what he's saying here. Thank you for sharing in my trouble by supporting me in my ministry. And so the rest of our time in the passage, we'll be looking at the second main point, which is this. When you find your joy in God, you can give with a God-focused perspective. Paul didn't just want to say thank you for the gift that the Philippians gave him. He wanted to take the opportunity to remind them how they should give and why they should give. He wanted them to have a God-focused perspective on giving. And since we took an offering this morning and we tend to do that most weeks as Baptists, we really ought to take this moment to pursue this truth as well. So Paul gives us four points concerning a God-focused perspective on giving. First of all, giving is participation in God's work. Let's read verses 14 to 16. He says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. 
Now when Paul says that the Philippians shared in his trouble, he uses a word that we often uh, use for fellowship or participation. He says that by giving to support him, the Philippians are bonding together to aid him in his ministry. They are participating with him in God's work. Now this is true when we give our finances to support the ministry of our church or any other church. And in fact, it's also true when we give to support our missionaries across the country and around the world. And so when our missionaries come home and they report on their ministry to us, they rightly are reporting to us as fellow participants in their ministry through our support of them. We're supporting them through our giving. We're supporting them through our prayer for them. So when you give, don't dwell on what you could have done with that money had you not given it. You're going to rob yourself of the blessing of giving. Instead, pray for the ministry of the church. Pray as you give. Pray for our missionaries. Pray that God would multiply your gift into fruitful ministry in our community. And then pray that God would lead you in getting involved in that ministry, not just through your finances, but perhaps through new areas of service. And notice how Paul says in verses 15 and 16 that the Philippians had been involved in giving to Paul in the beginning of the gospel. And what he means here is not since the gospel was invented. What he means here is ever since they first were introduced to the gospel. So in other words, the Philippians became givers right out of the gate. They believed the gospel and they became givers. That's what Paul says here. In fact, Paul had barely left Philippi when they sent him financial support in Thessalonica. Now I understand we're not, you know, geographical um, wise men generally about the old world. And so I brought up a map here just so we could see. You'll notice here, uh, right over to the side here, this is Philippi. And then this next circle here, this is Thessalonica. Not very far apart from each other. And he even says that when he leaves uh, Macedonia, before he'd even left, I'll see if I can get this here, this whole area right here, this is Macedonia. So he's trying to go from Philippi to Thessalonica and then down to Corinth here. Before he can even get out of Macedonia, he says, they sent me a gift. These guys don't even let me get out of the region, and they're giving. That's how much they're eager to support him in his ministry. Now this is noteworthy because it shows that they were incredibly eager to participate in Paul's ministry by supporting him right away. But it's also notable because the city of Thessalonica, where they sent him his first gifts, was actually a much wealthier city than Philippi. They should have been able to support Paul themselves in an even greater way. But instead, the Philippian believers are the ones who are supporting Paul during his stay there. That's an incredible thing. This is an example of the fact that God doesn't always use the wealthiest of believers to support his work financially. In fact, he often uses people with very ordinary incomes to accomplish his work. Of course, there are some Lydia's 
who generously fund the Lord's work through sizable incomes. That's clear by the text of Scripture. But for the most part, the ministries of churches across America are funded by people who faithfully give out of their ordinary means. You don't have to be a millionaire to participate in God's work. You just have to be faithful. So that's the first thing he says about giving. Next, Paul says giving is about spiritual growth, not the gift. Look back again at the first verse in our passage, verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Notice again how Paul isn't rejoicing over the gift. He doesn't say, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you gave me some money. He doesn't say that. No, he's rejoicing in their concern for him. He wants to see their concern continue to blossom and grow and bear fruit in active ministry. And he makes this clear in verse 17. If you'll look down, he says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul, over and over again in this passage, is using these accounting terms to share the truths of Scripture here. The importance is not necessarily that they were giving a gift. The importance is that they show concern and that concern worked itself out in a gift. This means that the importance in giving is not necessarily the amount you give per se. Someone who gives a million dollars to a ministry can do so with the most selfish motivation. And a person can give $20 to a ministry with the kind of generous spirit that God loves. The difference is not in the amount that was given. The difference is in the motivation, in the desire to see God's ministry expanding and growing to his glory. And the other gives to receive recognition or merely to satisfy a a legalistic compulsion to give. Now certainly someone who gives with the right motive will give generously, but the amount of the gift is not the point. The point is that your giving demonstrates a heart that is yielded to God, desirous of seeing his will done, and recognizing that all of your resources are really his to use for his own glory. We're just stewards of those resources. So that's our first two points. Number three, Paul says, giving is ultimately an act toward God, not just toward men. Let's look together at verse 18. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Notice at the beginning, it sounds an awful lot like Paul is writing his own receipt for their gift. Here is your charitable donation receipt. I have received everything I need and even more. Paid in full and then some. I don't think he can be any more clear that in the relationship of giving and receiving, that he says that he only had with this one church, the Philippian church. He didn't have this kind of relationship with any other church. 
But he says in this relationship that he has with the Philippian church, in this giving and receiving, he feels like he has received more than he has given. And yet in the second half of this verse, he reveals that their gifts aren't ultimately for him. Notice what he calls them. He calls them a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, I don't know about you, but this sounds an awful lot to me like what he says to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 1, when he says to them, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Doesn't that sound like those verses kind of just go hand in hand with one another? By the language that Paul uses here, he seems to be saying that as part of living your life, as a living sacrifice in worship to God, your giving should just be an extension of that spiritual worship. It's a part of giving everything that you have in your life to Him. When we give our offerings, we give them to God, much in the same way that the Israelites offered up their sacrifices to God in the Old Testament. Because our giving is to God, we give generously. We give willingly, and we give him our best, not just what's left over when we spent everything else. So we've seen three points. Let's move finally to the fourth point that Paul gives us, and that is giving is always reciprocated in a greater way by God who deserves the glory. Let's look at the last two verses, starting with Verse 19. Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you remember how Paul said that he had been in this giving and receiving relationship with the Philippians? You notice how he had received a full payment in the form of their gifts to him? I think it's crucial for us to notice that Paul does not see it as his responsibility to pay them back for their gifts to him. He doesn't say, wow, um, you guys have really upped the ante here. Uh, I'm not sure how I'm going to be able to compete with that gift, but I'll do my best. No. What does Paul say instead? He said, you have given generously to me, but really you've given generously to God. And so therefore he says, God will supply every one of your needs. Just as the gift was ultimately to God, so God will be the one to repay. And he doesn't just reciprocate the gift at the same level. Notice that Paul says, God will reciprocate according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now this is a very carefully worded phrase that Paul uses elsewhere in the New Testament as well. When he says that God gives according to his riches, it's kind of like saying that you have a great financial need. Say that you have to accumulate $30,000 for a needed medical 
operation. Most of us, at the drop of a hat, aren't able to accumulate that very quickly. But say that you have a wealthy friend who has access to millions of dollars, legally. Okay. He has access, meaning he has that money. It's his. And he may decide that he wants to help you out. So, he could give you some money out of his riches and give you $5,000. Now, that is definitely a very generous amount. That's more than I would be able to give you in that situation, even if I loved you greatly. But, if he decides to give you according to his riches, he will pay for the entire surgery. And he may even buy you a nice car to help you recover when the surgery is done. Okay, that is giving according to his riches. So when Paul says, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches, he is saying that God will provide for you in such a way that you could never possibly repay him. It's impossible. And notice, in this instance, Paul is not just talking strictly in monetary terms. Not just money. Just as God has provided for Paul by supplying for all of his needs, by healing him when he's beaten and stoned and left for dead, by giving him strength to sing when he's imprisoned, by giving him contentment in any circumstance. So God would do the same for the Philippians. And even more than that, we have absolutely no idea the level of riches that await us in our final home where we have been laying up treasures where neither moth nor rust destroys, where neither thieves do not break in and steal. And when God lavishes in such a way upon us, what else can we say but what Paul does when he breaks into praise to God and he says, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. So how about you? Are you a giver? Does your giving pattern indicate that you want to participate in God's work regularly through financial support? I understand this is not a topic that we enjoy talking about regularly. It can be uncomfortable talking about it in church. But you have to understand that Jesus talked more about money than he did about almost anything else in the Gospels. He talked more about money than he did about heaven and hell combined. It's something that reveals who we are as people. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is too. And so do you look forward to opportunities to give, not, not just in our offering here at church, but to others as well, because it's an overflow of your desire to be like Christ, who is the ultimate giver. How so? Jesus gave up his glory in heaven. Can you imagine that? Who does that? He lived a perfect life. 
He died to take the penalty for sins so that if you place your faith in him, he will give to you eternal life, the absolute greatest gift. If we want to be like Jesus, we have to be givers because Jesus gave everything. This doesn't mean that we have to give more than others do. Remember, after all, it's not so much about the amount. It's about our motive to give back to God generously out of what he has generously given to us. Do you see your giving as offerings to God? If we see our giving as merely to people or to a church, we'll stop being givers when we get angry at certain people or when things don't go our way. But when we remember that our giving is to God, we stay focused on the perspective that our giving is an offering to a perfect God who is worthy of everything that we have and so much more. Do you believe that God will truly supply every need of yours according to his riches? Now let me be clear. I don't mean that if you put $200 in the offering today, He'll make sure you get $200,000 tomorrow. Don't walk away from this thinking at all that's what I'm implying. But I do mean that God will, in his providence, give you what you need. And he will supply us with contentment in any and every circumstance. Do you bring God glory through your giving? Do you bring God glory through your grieving? Can you say today that, though you may be hurting, you are content in the joy that you have in God? So that you can say with Paul, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray together. Father, it's a very humbling thing to recognize that we truly own nothing, that you own everything. And it's a humbling thing to recognize that you have given us a high responsibility to be stewards of the things that we do have in this life. And so I pray that you would use your word this morning as you've shown us through the Apostle Paul to teach us that what we have is yours. We're to use it responsibly, that we're supposed to give generously, that we're supposed to be wise with what you've given to us and be completely content in whatever situation you place us in. Father, that may be in, in want. We may have nothing that we think. And yet we can be content in that. And it may be with much. And Father, would you guard us from the problem of thinking that we are self-sufficient. Help us to be Christ-sufficient. I pray, Father, that you would continue to work in our hearts through the preaching of your word to bring yourself glory. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.